Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are in the world, and welcome to this month's Black Hat webcast, Rich Internet Application Security, brought to you by Black Hat and United Business Media, LLC. I'm Darrington Forbes, and I'm your announcer today. We have just a few announcements before we begin. This webcast is designed to be interactive between you and the presenters. Later in the program, we'll ask for your feedback. You can participate in the Q&A session by asking questions at any time during the presentation. Just type your question into the Ask a Question text area below the media player, then click the Submit button. We will answer as many questions as time permits after the presentation. You may enlarge the slide window at any time by clicking on the Enlarge Slide button located below the presentation window. The slides will advance automatically throughout the event. You can also download a copy of the presentation by clicking on the Download Slide button below the presentation window. At this time, we recommend you disable your pop-up block. If you are experiencing any technical problems, please visit our webcast help guide by clicking on the help link below the video window. In addition, you can contact our technical support helpline, which is also located in the webcast help guide. Now on to the presentation, Rich Internet Application Security. Moderating today is Jeff Moss, founder of Black Hat. Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Um, this is going to be our eighth webcast that we've offered uh, for free. And the topic this time is RIA, Rich Internet Application Security. Um, and you'll be hearing about how the RIA experiences sort of evolve out of the 2.0 experience and what we can expect from this technology in the future. Everybody seems to be wanting to get their, their hand into it, a piece of the pie from you know Adobe Air or Microsoft. Or, and it, it seems like the space is moving very quickly, and that's why we have three experts here to help uh, talk about specifically what what's going on in the space, what's uh, to be afraid of, and, and what's fine. Um, so let me first tell you who, who's talking in what order, and then we'll kick this thing off. Um, so first up, we're going to have Billy Hoffman, a manager for HP Security Labs at HP Software. Uh, his work there includes research focusing specifically on JavaScript source code analysis, automated discovery of web application vulnerabilities, and web crawling technologies. I guess that would be considered spidering. He'll be followed by Alex Stamos, uh, founding partner of ISEC Partners. I'm sure a lot of you guys know uh, Alex's work. He is a leading researcher in the field of web application and web services. And last year he spoke at uh, Black Hat USA in our deep knowledge track, uh, and his subject then was living in the RIA world. And the final speaker is Pilas Uli from Adobe, and uh, he's a senior researcher security researcher within the secure software engineering team at Adobe, and his primary focus is assisting with Adobe platform technologies, including Flash Player and Air. And so I can already think of five questions for him, and I'm, I'm sure you guys will be anxious to uh, quiz him about what's going on over at Adobe. So as always, if you've got any questions, uh, I'll be a acting as sort of a moderator during the conversation. So if a question pops up, I might interrupt. Uh, the speakers, I might combine two or three questions that you guys have submitted and combine them into one meta question, uh, or I might hold off on some until the end for questions and answers. So if they're relevant questions, I'll try to interrupt and, uh, and make it and get it answered. And then also at the end, of course, we'll have Q&A sessions, and then we'll ask you for some feedback uh, so we can maybe improve our process for future stuff. And uh, so... Unfortunately, Billy's been traveling for the last couple of days, and it was really difficult to get his slides in on time. So his slide deck is not loaded in this presentation system, but I have a URL where you can go download his 
presentation. So let me tell you that before Billy kicks off. If you go to uh, HTTPS, www.blackhat.com, or I guess you can go there without HTTPS, but go to blackhat.com slash HTML slash webinars slash Hoffman, H-O-F-F-M-A-N dot PDF, and you'll be able to download his PDF and follow along while he's talking. Otherwise, you'll just be stuck looking at this uh, presentation uh, view of the bios of everybody. So we'll quiz you on each person's bio at the very end. So, okay, everybody, sit down and get ready to learn about what's happening in RIA. I want to hand it off to uh, Billy, and uh, he'll take it from there. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, Jeff, and uh, thanks for uh, being able to be so flexible with those slides. Um, so just kind of to start it off, what I'm going to be focusing on with my little section of the talk here is offline applications. You know, a, a big component of these rich Internet apps is we're transitioning so the browser is no longer a dumb terminal. Um, you know, it plays a meaningful role in the app. And uh, with, you know, kind of the rise of RIA and, and Web 2.0 and Ajax and, and Flash and Flex and things like this, uh, we see more and more of the application logic being pushed to the client but it's still talking back to a web server, and there's a component of the app still running on the server. Uh, now, what's interesting is that over the last year or two, well, actually about only the last 18 months, we've started to get the technology to have what they're calling offline applications, where so much of the web application is written uh, in uh, a real language like JavaScript or Flash that the app, this, this web app, can actually do something meaningful when it's not connected to the web, <laughs> which is a little confusing when you think about it. Um, so to, to start off, to really kind of understand this, we need to think of what are the technologies that are enabling this to happen? Uh, because, you know, even with in the Web 2.0 space, you have kind of a, a symbiotic relationship between the, the browser uh, and the web server, and now it's all just the browser. Um, so why this is possible is the languages that we're getting uh, to, to interact with the clients are much, much richer. Um, you know, people every day uh, are, I think, surprised at all you're able to do with JavaScript. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very rich, object-based language. Uh, allows you to do many, many powerful things, uh, from, you know, HTTP network communication to, you know, complicated string ops like regexes, uh, a very interesting um, kind of object inheritance model as well that makes it very powerful. Uh, actually allows you to redefine functions at runtime, including the constructors, of uh, native objects, uh, which there's been some very interesting security vulnerabilities that I know that uh, both myself and Alex have presented at previous Black Hat. Um, so that, that's kind of giving you the, the, the client language to write these things in. And I'm going to focus more on JavaScript, though uh, we're starting to see these types of offline apps starting to become available for Flash and, and other languages. Um, but having a language is not enough. It's got to be able to interact with something. So uh, what we've seen is that uh, these, to, to provide offline access, um, various uh, technologies are used so you have what's kind of called a, a local cache for your web resources so that when I'm not actually connected to the Internet and I want to fetch, say, this XML file or this HTML file because they're navigating around, the browser can transparently, instead of sending a network request to fetch this, it just pulls it from this little cache. Uh, now, these, uh, I'm going to really focus kind of on two platforms that are providing these type of offline capabilities. Uh, the first one is Google Gears, which was introduced uh, about a year and a half ago or so, 
and consisted of uh, pretty much a, a plug-in to the various browsers. Um, and uh, it used this plug-in into the browser to provide this type of functionality. Uh, Google Gears is now a native component of Google Chrome, which is their web browser. In fact, I'm pretty sure they're just calling it Gears now. Uh, the HTML5 spec that's being created by the, the WATWG, which is the, the working group, um, it's actually going ahead and put into the spec for HTML5 this same concept. Uh, they call it um, application caching, but the idea is the same. Let's have a website defined through some type of manifest that the files that the uh, web browser should download and store in a special um, offline cache so that when the browser is actually offline, it's going to pull these files from that cache. Uh, the second component I want to focus on today are these client-side databases, because we, we not only need to be able to actually store web resources, um, as I said, the HTML files, the XML, the images, the style sheets, the JavaScript, but we also need a way for uh, the client actually to store large amounts of data uh, inside a, a nice client-side relational database. So I'm going to go ahead and move on. For those of you following along at home, I'm on slide five. So uh, the first thing let's focus on here is this local cache for web documents or resources. So this is really different than your browser's cache. When I'm talking about these, I'm not talking about, um, you know, the fact that you're storing the CNN logo or the Black Hat logo uh, on your disk so the next time you visit that website, it doesn't have to fetch it. That, that cache is there for performance reasons. And, and this, is, this is also not like flash cookies Correct, correct. Flash cookies, are, which are actually uh, local storage objects, are, are another separate kind of technology uh, that people have long used to try to store more data. Uh, this is actually a separate cache that's just for resources. It's similar to your disk cache, but it's not the same thing. Just visiting a page and getting things on your browser's disk cache is not the same thing as putting them in this local offline cache. Um, that's actually used. You have to, the web page has to explicitly say what it wants to include, and it does this with a manifest file. Uh, normally, uh, the, whether you're using HTML5, uh, which Safari and, and uh, Google Chrome and such support, or you're dealing with Google Gears, you know, it, it varies how you do this. Um, often you either do this inside of JavaScript, or you actually have a, a link tag, much like you'd reference a style sheet, actually pull in an XML manifest file, uh, looks a lot, awful lot like a manifest in a jar file, actually. So this basically instructs the browser, "Hey, this app is capable of being offline. Go fetch these or go fetch these documents." And then transparently, whenever the browser is offline, uh, the browser, whenever you click a link, instead of actually sending the HTTP request, it pulls it from this cache. Uh, now, what's interesting about this is it's programmatically accessible. So in this case, JavaScript is actually able to talk to, control, and manipulate the cache. Now, HTML5, which they're still kind of fleshing things out on, um, is not the most accurate or not the most detailed in terms of the security they're trying to put around these and how do you share caches between different apps. They have the concept of an application group ID, and apps that are, are saying they subscribe to the same group ID are able to share the same offline cache. Um, now, whether something from, say, site.com and evil.com can both have the same application group ID, um, not, not readily apparent. So actually for this, I'm going to focus on what I know a little bit better, which is Google Gears. Um, so Google Gears permission is based entirely on host port scheme. 
So you mean, Billy? Sure. Just, just to clarify, so the previous identification scheme, is that a big, giant cryptographic hash, or can you brute force that key space? And evil.com can just enumerate all the offline caches? Good or? question. So what happens, at least on, on the Google Gear side, is if you're trying to access one of these caches and you're being served from, say, evil.com instead of site.com, at, at a lower level, it won't let you. It's not a matter of if I guess the magical identifier or the magical key to get to this cache, I can get to it. Uh, it's actually being forced at a lower level. Mm. So you do have to know the name uh, as well. We'll see. So Google Gears, their permissions, not only for client-side databases, and they also have uh, some other interesting features, is um, what controls local storage. Their security permission is entirely based on host port scheme. So when, when I visit, say, let's just pick a really popular, you know, totally fictitious, uh, you know, uh, social networking site. Let's just call it, you know, uh, Facebook. So if you go to, if you're, you have an application at apps.facebook.com and it's going to use Google Gears, Google Gears is going to prompt you and say, hey, can apps.facebook.com use Google Gears? And if you say yes, everything on apps.facebook.com can access it. It doesn't matter what directory it's in. Mm. It doesn't matter uh, even necessarily um, SSL versus non-SSL. So you, you're basically whitelisting an entire domain. Uh, really, in this world of user-generated content, that's not a very granular, um, <laughs> that's not a very granular security context. Uh, and it also kind of falls short because it just says, you know, yes, I always want to trust this. And I mean, that really kind of reeks of... Yeah, you know, there's no one-time only. Exactly. There's, there's no way of doing that. It really kind of reeks of a, you know, late 90s ActiveX control. So, now what's interesting is, is once you've granted permission, as I said, uh, you can start attacking the local cache. So if we think about, um, you know, say there's an application on apps.social.net, and it's called SafeApp in the SafeApp directory. Um, and then you've got a different app uh, called apps on apps.social.net as well. That's called Evil App. If you visit one, they, they actually can access each other's local storage, access their databases, everything. So it's, it's, it can get pretty scary. So and there is no no script for gears. Correct. There's no no script for gears because it's actually at a uh, well. The, the there's a browser plugin that's there. You probably could say I don't want JavaScript to execute for say this you know, apps.social.net, and because the JavaScript is actually what communicates with the plugin, uh, NoScript actually could be a, uh, a pretty good uh, defense against this. Now that I think about it. Hmm, that's a good point, Jeff. Just curious, yeah. So um, basically the, uh, the way this works is you kind of specify for, for be- what, what we want to talk about is how one app can poison another app. And so essentially... Um, the first app says, hey, I want to cache these files and stick it in my local storage. And then when I'm offline, I use them. Well, the evil app can do the exact same thing. It basically says, look, I also want to use this local storage. You have to know the name of the local storage. Um, this is just, as you mentioned before, kind of that key, Jeff. But these normally are not random. Uh, they're normally just a, a, a basic thing. Remember the milk is a great example of somebody who's using a local store because you can use rememberthemilk.com in offline mode and also uses the database. And the name of the database and the name of the local store is just hard-coded in the JavaScript. So finding these is not very difficult. And it, it's actually trivial uh, using basically the, um, the store.open, store.capture, and store.remove. Evil app can actually say, okay, I want to go ahead and fetch a 
a new version, my own fake version of, say, a piece of JavaScript, and then go ahead and say, hey, you know that JavaScript file that SafeApp said you wanted to store for offline apps? Go ahead and replace it with this one. And it works. There's no dialogue. There's no warning. Nothing comes up. Uh, it's very easy for one application on the same host uh, to hijack the content or the database of another application. It's actually a feature. <laughs> um, so the, the local storage itself is interesting because it's basically cache poisoning made easy through JavaScript. Uh, and there's some, uh, if you grab the slide, you can see the actual JavaScript source snippet to actually perform this. So the, the local, the, the offline being able to have the cache is interesting because we can poison it. And obviously, if we can poison it, also one application can snoop on the data of another application. Um, let's move now to the client-side database because, you know, don't get me wrong, you know, uh, cache poisoning is cute, cache poisoning is sexy, but, you know, the database is where the data is. So let's play with this. So both in Google Gears and in the HTML5 implementations we've seen done by, say, like Mozilla um, with Firefox 3, uh, they are using a SQLite database. So SQLite is a, a pretty interesting and sexy database. Now, it has some commands other than just your classic select, insert, delete commands. Oh, wait, wait, Billy, I'm sorry to, sorry to interrupt. And sure. I want to give people the URL one more time because now that you're getting into code snippets, more people are wanting to follow along. Sure. Okay, so if you go to blackhat.com uh, slash HTML slash webinar, and then it's Hoffman, H-O-F-F-M-A-N dot P-D-F. I'm sorry, it's webinars, plural, W-E-B-I-N-A-R-S slash H-O-F-F-M-A-N dot P-D-F. And, and that link will be up beyond after the, the webcast for those of you who can't necessarily grab it right now. And then so what slide would you be generally speaking at right now? I, so the code snippets that are most interesting are on slides 9 and 10. Uh, and 10 actually shows how to do the the, the the smashing of the cache and actually override the offline storage from evil app into the safe app, um, which I, I think I've done a fairly good job explaining how this works. It's, it's really kind of a feature, for lack of a better term, of the, uh, the framework, um, and you're simply being able to both instantiate the same application cache and the evil app just says, okay, I want to clobber stuff that's already in there uh, with my own content. So it could put in, say, a Trojan a JavaScript file, it could put in, you know, an HTML file with uh, phony content inside of it, things like that. Some of those are, are, are good vectors. Uh, so moving to slide 11, here's where we're actually talking about client-side databases and ultimately uh, how we can attack them. So uh, SQLite has some interesting commands, like I said, besides your classic SQL commands like select, insert, delete, such like that. Um, it actually has some dangerous commands that are supposed to be removed or disabled from these uh, client-side uh, frameworks, mainly the attach and detach, which allow you to say, hey, open up the database that's contained inside this file. Uh, SQLite databases are kind of interesting because they're essentially uh, a database in a single file. Um, and so they're, they're very portable, very easy to move around. Um, now, the size limits, the amount of data you can push into these things, is uh, it depends on the, the framework. Uh, Alex is going to talk a little bit about this later. But uh, limits of 5 megs, 10 megs are not uncommon. Uh, Google Gears actually by default allows you have, once you've whitelisted it, that, yeah, this guy can you know, go ahead and it, it's allowed to use Google Gears, uh, has infinite storage. So there's a very trivial um, denial of service of local resources. 
especially because Google Gears has something called um, Worker Pool, which essentially is a thread in JavaScript. I can just spawn a thread that does nothing but shove garbage into a database uh, in the background trying to fill up your disk. Um, so there's some few other things about SQLite that I want to talk about before we get into SQL injecting it. Um, it does not enforce data types. So if you create a directory and say, yeah, or create a table and say, you know, I'm going to have an ID and it's an integer, I'm going to have a name and it's a varchar, you know, things like that, not actually enforced by the database. Those are their suggestions. Um, this is critical, be, or this is key. It makes it a lot easier for an attacker because later when you're actually doing SQL injection and maybe you're doing union selects, you don't have to match up the data types. You can be wrong and it won't matter. Um, SQLite does not allow stacked queries. Stacked queries is when you can say something like select star from some table, semicolon, you know, delete from the orders database. You can't execute two commands or feed it two commands and have both execute. It takes the first one? Um, it takes the first one and ignores the second one. And uh, also, it does allow um, dash dash to comment out the rest of the line. So when you are doing injections, it's, it's fairly easy to clean up your uh, everything afterwards. Every SQLite database also has a table called SQLite underscore master. And this is your friend. It basically gives you access to what are all the other user-defined tables in this database, what are their column types, everything like that. So it's, it's kind of the equivalent of uh, sysobjects in um, uh, Microsoft SQL. So, all right, uh, moving on to uh, slide 12. So, you know, I'm, I'm just here. I'm just showing kind of an example. I built a, a, a app that basically is just going to go ahead and have, uh, it's just a list app, actually very similar to Remember the Milk. Um, and you can see, you know, this is a very basic application that allows you to leave notes and see what they are. Well, it accepts input from the user, and basically, it's, it's running these queries against the database. In this case, the list app lets you say things like, hey, I want to save an app called, you know, work, or save an app or called personal, you know, these lists. And so what's happening is, much like a traditional client-server app or even a Web 1.0 app, what's happening on the back end is the, the code is actually saying, look, go ahead and give me all the task items where the name of the list is to do. Well, that's classic SQL injection territory because if you can inject into that, they're taking user inputs and placing it into a query. So, you know, uh, I go ahead and if I just do a simple, you know, instead of loading the list to do, let's load a list, you know, to do space tick, you know, and just do something designed to try to break the SQL query, you'll actually see a very familiar error message. It's, a, you know, it's your old friend, the ODBC error message, you know, hey, there's an error in your SQL syntax. The sexy thing here is it's not coming back from the web server, uh, you know, inside like a, a an ASP error message or a, a PHP error message. Uh, it's actually inside your browser's um, JavaScript dialog where JavaScript runtime errors would appear. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, a classic error. It's just in a new location. Now, what's interesting here is it means, okay, we know we have SQL injection against this app. Um, so you can do start doing very basic things like, okay, you know, give me all the items from my to-do list and give me all the names of the tables from the sys master, or the, excuse me, the SQLite master table. And so you actually can retrieve all the names of the database. And actually, for those of you who are, are looking at the slides, you can see that there are two tables in this database, one called items and one called list. Um, now, it's, a lot of people at this point are thinking, why, why would you do this? Why would you SQL inject yourself? That's kind of silly. Um, you know, you... 
at the end of the day, you actually have this database that's sitting as a file on your system. You could, you know, open it if you wanted to. Well, think about this in the context of a cross-site scripting attack. So let's say I go ahead and I have a, let's go back to that Facebook example. So I have an application called Evil on Facebook. Um, it is used, it's being served from, say, app.facebook.com. You've got maybe something, uh, in another application on Facebook called, you know, like My Secret Crush or something that's using a database to store some personalized data. Um, maybe uh, there's a Facebook, or excuse me, a Facebook app that has something that allows you to store passwords for other sites, um, you know, password reminder, things like that. Um, if I, uh, since I can now execute JavaScript, uh, because I either own this app or I find a cross-site scripting application on a site, I can go ahead and execute JavaScript code now, which will connect to that database, iterate through everything inside of it, and extract out all the data. And we actually can see on slide 16, this is what I'm talking about, I wrote a tool called uh, ggHook for Google Gears Hook that simply iterates over the JavaScript environment, finds the database, and pulls everything out. Uh, there's actually a, a publicly available tool called, uh, I believe it's HTML5 CS dump. So it's HTML5 client-side dump. And it iterates, it finds any databases, it finds some other things called session storage and global storage, which we won't go into, and extracts everything out of it. So, you know, that's certainly interesting from a, I use this as a payload in a cross-site scripting attack. But the other thing to remember about client-side SQL injection is that it, it may be difficult for me to get uh, the data off of your machine you know, because maybe my injection, my attack point, is something that maybe in a message board where I save it, it's stored locally on your machine when you're in offline mode. And then when you try to access your local database, you know, maybe my name runs. So it might say something like, hey, give me all the posts where the username is acidus, tick, whatever. And so I'm actually able to, to get this query onto your machine and running against your database in that fashion. Um, Getting the information off might be difficult. Um, that, that's certainly the case. But this is what people said about blind SQL injection. So the, the key thing to remember about SQL injection, it's not about accessing data. It's about executing database commands, one of which happens to be stealing data. I very well could start dropping your tables, um, inserting malicious information into them, maybe additional cross-site scripting attacks or remote iframes so that when you do connect back to the app, it can sync this stuff up and actually pollute your, um, per, perhaps your uh, personal profile, things like that. So just because it's hard to maybe extract data out through client-side SQL injection, you're still fundamentally executing databases commands on somebody else's system, which is a bad thing. So, uh, you know, just moving on to, to the slide 17 here, uh, almost my last one. So just because, the, the as I said, the extracting the data is harder, you're still executing commands. The fact that you can't do stacked queries is severely annoying. Uh, it makes it difficult to do things like just say semicolon delete from. You got to be a little more creative. Um, we have actually seen this occur in a while. Uh, Michael Sutton, who actually uh, used to be a researcher here at HP before moving on, uh, did some excellent work recently uh, and actually found client-side SQL injection in a legitimate web app and worked with them to resolve it. Uh, so I highly suggest uh, seeing uh, Michael Sutton of Zscaler's work. Um, also, um, there are some automated extraction scripts. So I wrote one, which I haven't released, the, the GG hook. And as I mentioned, uh, Alberto wrote this HTML client-side dump, which also can accomplish the same thing. So just as I wind up here, you know, what, what takeaway should you uh, 
have from this little chat, you know, the client's important again. I never thought I would say you have to care about client-side input validation from a security perspective, but you kind of do because if, if you're – if you're in offline mode, the only input this thing is getting is from the client, and it's going directly to client resources. And if you're not doing various forms of input validation, uh, you're going to screw yourself. Much like we always said, you have to do secure or input validation on the server for security. Uh, you have to do it on the client as well for offline security. Um, so the key to remember here is that uh, use input validation. The thing that shocks me is that there are no good JavaScript input validation libraries. There are some that are maybe coupled with Ruby on Rails or uh, other JavaScript frameworks, and they're clumsy, and they require you to, like, use special class names with your inputs or name them special IDs. They're a huge pain in the ass. Really what I want is something that's like validator.us.zip code, and you pass it a zip code, and it returns a Boolean. Believe it or not, that does not exist, which is incredibly depressing. So shame on the JavaScript uh, developers of the world. Um, another thing to remember is that most of these frameworks, be it HTML5 or Google Gears, support parameterized SQL queries. So this is exactly uh, the recommended defense on the server side, uh, where you actually insert tokens and you allow the um, SQL interpreter to actually uh, do the correct quoting and things like that for you. You should not be concatenating strings, even on the client, to do SQL queries. The final thing to note, certainly from the, the local storage example and being able to poison um, from one app to another, is be careful who you get in bed with. Um, you know, certain things like, for example, Google Gear's um, storage method or security methodology kind of necessitates um, that you can have cross-path attacks. So just because you're on the same host um, doesn't mean that you should whitelist for that entire host. So you should be very careful when you're deploying an application on a host that you do not completely control. Uh, unfortunately, kind of this whole idea of, you know, user-generated content, remember, you were Times Man of the Year just a few years back because you're generating all this great content. Uh, it, it makes a really ripe environment for where your content is being placed either into the same host, possibly even to the same paths with content you can't trust. So really that's, uh, that's all I've got. And what do you see in future browsers like Chrome that's trying to spawn different process spaces for every single site? Um, you know, so you have sort of one JavaScript can't contaminate another one or everything exactly. executes. Yeah. Uh, does it's, this obviate all that because it's really just a file on the disk? Uh, I, I, this doesn't – so what, what Chrome is doing with isolating tabs from each other uh, simply isolates the, the execution from each other. They're still accessing, like you said, the same file on the disk and are allowed to access the same file on a disk. I think Chrome is a perfect example of why browsers are so screwed up. I mean, it's, everyone's like, oh, this is cool, it's sexy and fast, and don't get me wrong, I love my Chrome. But the very fact that a browser has a task manager – you to monitor things like memory and processor usage shows what this beast has become. I mean, browsers were never designed to be miniature operating systems for little applications. They were designed to render documents. Um, and I, I, I'm sure the other speakers are going to go into, we have all these different technologies from Flash to Java to plugins, that, and everything has a different security a context, even the same idea of what a same origin means and how you can circumvent that, um, we really kind of have this nasty house of cards built on top of a you know foundation of sand, and, and we're trying to do things with it we never intended to do. Um, and I, I 
I don't really see a happy ending here. I don't think Chrome is that happy ending. And so if you were ultimately paranoid, though, I mean, there isn't, is there a solution if you wanted to go crazy where, I don't know, you would create five different user accounts and you'd run as everything as a separate user so their disks, I mean, I can't see a way around this. It's sort of like you opt into it or you don't. Exactly. And unfortunately, we, we see such a push to Web 2.0. If you are security conscious, uh, you might not have a choice. I mean, no script is fantastic, but it only lets you whitelist on a per-host basis. Um, you know, it, it's tricky. What I would suggest is the application developers and the people who are creating these content kind of social platforms. You know, a perfect example, all of these, if, if applications that were on social networking sites were each run in separate host names, subdomains, we would not have this problem. We could be safe. Because, for example, this the safe app, if it was maybe at md5 of the application name dot social dot net, it could not go ahead and you would basically whitelist Google Gears or HTML5 for that domain. An evil app, which would be served from a separate uh, and very predictable host name because it's the md5, would not be able to access it. I think that's why Amazon spends so much time designing their domain architecture. So, yeah, you poison one part of their domain. That's why it's not images.amazon.com. It's all one word. They're very careful at segregating. But really, do you think social app developers are going to think that through? <laughs> I unfortunately don't. You know, that's the thing is we've always talked in web security that it's the developer's, it's the developer's um, a job to do security. Uh, it, security can't be baked in afterwards. But the thing here is, is that they're running it on a platform which can be inherently insecure. And so really we need to see a much better melding of the minds between people who are writing applications in JavaScript, the browser developers, uh, the people who are building these kind of uh, online platforms for people to run applications inside of the browser. Um, they all need to get on the same page. And that seems to be happening. There's a lot more openness in the web development community than there has been. Um, and the browser manufacturers are doing a phenomenal job staying open uh, and honest and fully documenting their security procedures. Uh, I look at IE8 uh, and their, their kind of their HTTP header they're trying to use to stop clickjacking attacks, uh, which is a, a really a good step in the right direction. And they made that open. Uh, so any of the other browser manufacturers can do it too, uh, which is a, a huge, I mean, it's a complete 180 from, you know, how those people reacted during the browser wars in the late 80s, or excuse well, me, 90s. So. Well, you'll be able to ask Billy some more questions later, but next we're going to move on to Alex. He's going to push over his uh, first slide, and uh, Alex is going to go into further detail on a slightly related topic. Well, slightly related or... Exactly the same, but I'm going to try not to step on Billy's Exactly. Stones. You're just not going to use the same uh, slides that he used. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> right. right. Um, I'll say everything Billy said, but slower. So <laughs> that'll be my shtick. Um, actually, yeah, so uh, thank you, Jeff, for having us uh, speak here. I just wanted to, to name drop the, the other folks who I did this research with, David Thiel and Justine Osborne. Um, and uh, if you see me avoiding... Uh, to answer any questions, it's probably because those are the areas uh, that uh, they actually did the research on. So you'll see me duck and weave a little bit during the Q&A session. Um, so I, I was going to talk a little bit about um, a number of different platforms here, uh, Air, Silverlight, Gears, uh, Yahoo, and HTML5. I think Billy did a fantastic job talking about the, the most interesting part of Gears security right now, which is the, uh, 
data storage and SQL injection, which is one of the more interesting parts about HTML5 as well. Uh, so probably focus a little bit more on Adobe Air uh, and touch upon Silverlight and Browser Plus. Um, and then rush to the end where we talk about some of the practical effects uh, a number of these vulnerabilities are going to have on people and some recommendations we have uh, for how people should deal with it. Um, so I think uh, Billy defined you know, rich internet applications a little bit for folks. It's unfortunately one of those massively overused terms. It, 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 people are using RIA to describe everything from a site that uses a little bit of Flash all the way to full desktop applications that are heavily integrated with the web. Um, this is partially because the, the Web 2.0 and AJAX are not terms that you can use to, to put a couple million dollars of extra venture capital uh, on your plate. You, you know, RIA is, is much more trendy, um, and if you, you have a, a RIA hosted in a cloud uh, by outsourced developers, you're probably going to be totally set uh, taking your, your business plan down to, to Sand Hill Road. Um, so because it's so broadly, it, it's such a broad term, it's really impossible for us to say anything about is RIA secure, right? There are, there are a number of different models and a number of different platforms. They have totally non-overlapping security concerns. Um, so we'll talk about a couple of those um, to supplement what Billy talked about. Mostly what people are trying to do is they're, they're trying to either integrate more with the desktop to, to access data that you normally don't have from inside the web browser or to uh, be able to do things on the desktop that you normally can't do from a web application, or they're trying to increase their responsiveness uh, with, with existing web GUI. Um, so, you know, a lot of the, the data storage stuff that Billy's talking about has a, a, some real popular uses for folks. Um, for example, uh, Gmail now has a beta feature that you can opt into where it will store uh, basically all of your inbox locally inside of your browser. And so you can sync up your Gmail, get on a plane, not have connectivity, um, and have absolutely no problem accessing your Gmail, sending mail, and stuff like that. Um, so there's, there's a, a pull here of, you know, companies that want to be able to compete uh, with the, the traditional thick client application companies, uh, that, you know, products from people like Microsoft, but they want to compete just from the web. And it's impossible to do that with the, the current uh, standard implementations until people have added a lot of non-standard uh, functionality into the browsers. Um, another kind of scary reason people like to use RIA uh, is, is the idea of people being allowing web developers who never had to go out and learn you know, we kind of say a real programming language here, which is maybe a little too snarky, but people have not had to go out and learn how to write Win32, C++, or even uh, client-side Java. Um, being able to write fully featured desktop applications that run right next to your Microsoft Office or, or your thick, uh, you know, open source app on your Linux desktop, that's scary, right? Because what these technologies, are, some of them are doing is they're allowing web developers who may or may not understand web security now make decisions and architectural decisions and design decisions in their product that affect desktop security. Um, and also some of these platforms can, if, if improperly used, turn things like cross-site scripting bugs into you know, full rights execution on your desktop. Um, and some of the things that make RIA popular are also the things that should make it very unpopular with us, with the security people. So uh, just to make Pellis happy, I'm going to start with Adobe Air. Uh, partially also because Adobe Air is, out of all of the RIA frameworks we've looked at, by far the, the most powerful and most full-featured. Um, and here's just a little chart. It, everything's checked, right? You can basically do anything you want if you write an Adobe Air application and you convince people to download it. Um, it's a, a cross-browser, cr cross-platform 
technology based upon the Adobe Flash virtual machine, but adding a lot of uh, technology and classes to the virtual machine that aren't supported from normal Flash applications. Um, and it's intended to be more powerful than anything that's trapped in your browser. There is no sandbox, and this is very important, around the base Air application. Right? If, if you install an Air application, you are installing a fully executable desktop app, just like if you download an EXE uh, and click through the little box that says, yes, I want to run the signed EXE. When you say, I want to run the signed or unsigned Adobe Air application, you are executing it as a, as a full rights desktop application. There is no sandbox around the base application code in there. Um, sounds a lot like ActiveX. It sounds a lot like ActiveX, yeah, and I'll talk about that in a second, but yeah, it it's really is a reinvention of ActiveX based upon Flash in many ways. Now, it's, it's cross-platform, which is a benefit it has over ActiveX in that, you know, uh, theoretically, all of the platforms that support Flash uh, 9 and Flash 10 should be able to support Adobe Air um, eventually, um, but uh, from certainly from a user's kind of uh, click-through standpoint, what the, the, the GUIs look like and such, it's it's not just like ActiveX, it's a lot like kind of Internet Explorer 5 ActiveX. Yeah. Um, so uh, I just wanted to, to name drop, a little, and again, if you want to see our full slide deck, this is, you know, cut down information from what we presented at Black Hat last year. If you go to IsaacPartners.com, you can get our full Black Hat deck. Um, and in it, we have some screenshots of what it looks like when you, when you click through and you install an Adobe Air app. Um, and the Things that are allowed with Adobe Air are, are no longer allowed by Microsoft for ActiveX. Um, it is basically impossible to get people to, to install unsigned ActiveX controls. Um, you have to really uh, go through and uh, you know neuter all the security settings in Internet Explorer seven or eight. Um, getting them to getting them to execute an unsigned uh, Active uh, Air application is probably much easier. Right, it just pops up a box and it says this is not signed. Um, or is it, well, all, uh, to be fair, all Adobe apps are si Adobe Air apps are signed. It's just that they're allowed to be self-signed, which is the same as not being signed, right? Um, with, without any kind of, and they say, hey, this is dangerous, but that's just the exactly same decision that Microsoft gave everybody a couple a couple years ago, and we all know how that that turned out. Um, so you know, it's intended to be much more secure. Um, and so because this is a desktop application, you might think to yourself, hey, well, we should just look at Adobe Air applications like they are normal desktop apps. Um, and the reason that from a security standpoint they're not is that they are rich Internet applications. And the important letter there is the I, is the Internet. Um, these applications can be invoked from the browser, like ActiveX or Flash, although you can turn that off when you make your app. You can d decide whether or not it can be invoked. But they can be invoked from the browser. Um, there's there's no te technology built in to, to limit what sites they're invoked from. Um, and when you invoke them from a browser, you hand them untrusted data. And they've got lots of built-in native uh, mechanisms for loading external content. So things that would be very difficult if you were starting from C++ on 132, like taking Flash applets and downloading them and playing them as movies, only take one line of action script in Adobe Air, which is the whole point. The whole point is that you, you're creating a desktop application that now has the ability to do, like, here, I want to frame this HTML. I want to pull down a movie. I want to pull down a Flash applet. And so that makes means that the security model on the inside of Air is very, very important. Um, so like I said, Air is extremely powerful, allowing people to make desktop applications. So Adobe had to create a security model inside of Flash um, that never existed before, right? Flash is just not supposed to be able to do anything bad to you um, unless they have a vulnerability. But if that happens, they're supposed to patch it, right? Um, with Air, there are things that Air can do to you that's part of the design. And so they have created sandboxes inside of Air applications 
uh, to limit what you can do. And, and we're not going to go this into too much detail. Don't really have time. There are, I think, actually five sandboxes. There's a number of different levels. But the, the most important ones is, is, as always, the top sandbox and the bottom sandbox. There's the application sandbox, which is high rights. That's the code that comes in the Air application. Once you download it, it can do anything it wants, but it cannot do, it cannot execute um, dynamically generated code. So you can't do like a, a, a you basically can't create a dynamic script tag. You can't do a JavaScript eval inside of the application sandbox. You can't take a byte stream and serialize it into an action script class and call it. Those things are disallowed from inside the application sandbox. If, if you want to do that stuff, you have to write, run that code in the remote sandbox, which is basically like Flash, can do things like display on your screen and play videos and stuff like that, cannot touch your desktop, can't install malware, can't do bad things. The idea here is that when you write an error application, if you've got a little window in your error application that is also a website, that window, the code will be running under the low rights remote sandbox, and then maybe you have stuff around it that's running as a high rights application sandbox, and the remote sandbox should not be able to take code from the Internet to then run things on your desktop. Unfortunately, it's clear that you know you can't build that sandbox wall all the way up, right? There has to be ways to breach it. Otherwise, there's no way to build applications that interact with the web that can also interact with the desktop. And so there's this thing called the sandbox bridge, which is a, a very powerful tool that allows developers to take func uh, functions and attach it to a sandbox bridge. And once they're attached there, they can be viewed from multiple different sandboxes. So this is a place where people can make pretty significant mistakes writing Adobe Air applications. And we have actually seen this in the past. We've audited some Adobe Air applications professionally, written by professional developers, and they've already made the mistakes of doing things like writing functions that take the input that is a file name and allowing arbitrary data to be written that file name um, and then attaching that to the sandbox bridge. And so the, the result of that being, if I have my Adobe Air app and it's got a sandbox bridge, a, a dangerous function in the sandbox bridge, and it, I'm framing an HTML page, if there's a cross-site scripting bug in that HTML page, that script that got injected through the cross-site scripting attack can now install code on my desktop. And that's what, you know, Adobe's trying to prevent that, and I think they have a, a pretty reasonable system, and they've, they've worked very hard on building the security model here, but it's not difficult to make that mistake. And uh, it's especially not difficult because this is a, if you're taking professional uh, Flash developers, professional HTML and JavaScript developers, they're not people that are used to this kind of security model. And it's a brand new thing, and, and we're going to see a lot of error applications out there that have mistakes made in them like that. And it should be interesting when people start, you know, um, Stefano DiPaolo's done a lot of great stuff scanning Flash applets uh, in the bytecode to look for vulnerabilities. It should be pretty easy, actually, to scan uh, compiled Adobe Air uh, bytecode um, and look through and, and find things that are attached to the sandbox bridge and then audit them automatically. I, I would guess that tools to do that automatically should probably be coming out pretty soon. Um, there's, there's an idea if anybody wants it to apply to Black Hat 2009, uh, maybe at least a TurboTalk. So um, like we talked about before, air applets are all signed, but they allow self-signed installs by default. You can turn that off as a local user by changing a registry key, but it's it is in many ways like ActiveX before ActiveX got bad. And now installing ActiveX control means you get the yellow bar of death dropping from above, and you've got 17 pop-up boxes saying, don't do this, don't do this, you're crazy. Um, and error is certainly uh, it is much easier to install uh, a non-trusted thing. So, you know, Adobe is making a call here. They've decided to give this decision to the users, which sounds very reasonable. It's just, you know, we, we, we in the security community know what happened when you allow the average Internet user to make decisions like that, right? Um, generally not the right decision um, gets made. And so it should be interesting to see um, 
now that this is a, a new way to get people to download uh, programs, and it's difficult to download EXEs sometimes, it's definitely difficult to install ActiveX controls, whether or not malware offer, authors are going to move over to um, AIR uh, to, to see malware. Especially interesting because AIR does run on multiple platforms, so it would theoretically be possible to write platform-independent malware that then loads up platform-dependent rootkits, what's being installed onto people's machines, um, and then downloads and, and serializes and writes out uh, you know, platform-specific rootkits depending on whether or not it's running on Windows or, or OS X or Linux or whatever. So uh, that's Adobe AIR. Uh, you know, it's pretty good from the base. It's a very dangerous uh, technology to put in the hands of people um, and should be very interesting for security people to go ask your own folks, are we writing Adobe Air applications? What kind of security steps are we taking? Um, the next one we have is Silverlight. I'm not going to talk much about Silverlight because it's actually pretty boring. Um, th there's some irony here because, you know, Adobe started out with Flash, which was meant for rich content jailed inside the browser, and then they extended it and they created a desktop app, uh, a desktop uh, runtime, right? An, app, an application runtime to write desktop applications. Microsoft started with .NET, which is a fully featured runtime to write desktop and server applications, and then they cut it down, and that's what basically we have with Silverlight. Um, Silverlight is jailed just like a standard Java applet or a Flash applet. It does not have a adjustable security model, unlike Air. Um, and so, really, when you look at a Silverlight application, the, the security concerns are basically the same security concerns you have with Flash. Um, Cross-site scripting attacks inside the applet are possible, although Microsoft has the benefit of coming after Adobe in this and has made it a little more difficult. The number of functions that can take active JavaScript is actually smaller than it was in Flash. Still, it is possible to have uh, cross-site scripting attacks inside of Silverlight applications if they take untrusted input and then execute it, uh, in, it or, or take it as a, a URL that's then supposed to be loaded. Um, Privacy issues, which we'll talk about in a second, definitely exist. Silverlight has its own storage mechanisms. Um, you can do attacks against the virtual machine, just as people, you know, most of these flaws that we hear about in Flash are people attacking the Flash virtual machine, allowing to jump out of the bytecode and executing uh, on the desktop app. That's certainly possible with Silverlight. Um, uh, it's, it's based on the .NET CLR, so it is a, a pretty hardened uh, uh, implementation of the MSIL uh, VM. Um, but it's certainly possible those vulnerabilities will creep up. Uh, and then, you know, this might be interesting from a clickjacking perspective if people have been looking at Flash uh, a lot for playing GUI tricks like clickjacking. Uh, Silverlight might be a, a new way to do some of that stuff. Although, again, coming after uh, Flash deals with some of these issues, Microsoft has the, has the second mover benefit of being able to patch this stuff in, in the future. So overall, Silverlight's not very interesting from a security perspective right now, um, except if, if it gets extended to, to grow in the air direction. Uh, Microsoft already has a technology to allow you to download and run fully executable, platform-independent, full-rights code. It's called .NET. Will Silverlight be extended to support more and more .NET functionality to compete with AIR if AIR becomes super popular? It's possible, and it would be interesting at that point. But at this point, it's not something people think about too much. I'm not going to talk about Gears too much because Billy did a really good job. Um, the one uh, Gears thing I do want to talk about real fast is uh, Billy talked about how you have to opt in for Gears and how it has a GUI to do that. Um, if you look in our slide deck from, from Black Hat, um, you'll see that um, my colleague David Teal found out that you can highly customize the Gears GUI to the point of where you can actually change the icon to be a lock icon, and you can really make it look like it's some kind of trusted application uh, and, and very strongly obfuscate where you're coming from. Um, so the, the opt-in technology for Gears uh, the opt-in, you know, was was a kind of 
uh, a little bit too open. And I think they've, they've turned that down a little bit. In the most part, though, it's actually kind of quaint to, for us to complain about the opt-in mechanisms for gears, because like Billy said, HTML5 includes the implementation of the vast majority of gears' functionality at this point, and does so without any kind of standard for opting in or decisions. Um, like Billy said, uh, includes HTML5 now has the DOM storage mechanism, as well as, as fully, a fully-fledged SQLite database um, embedded in it, all, all of it using um, some version of the same origin policy. Um, he talked a lot about SQL injection and stealing of data. The, the other thing, um, and, and we had some you know, generic code for if you want to do some SQL injection, what your JavaScript can look like uh, to, to pull data down. The, the other thing that you need to think about when you're talking about um, uh, client-side storage is denial of service, uh, which is a very interesting issue that we've never not had to really think about too much. So... Uh, like Billy talked about, that's a, a platform-dependent uh, decision of whether or not, um, or not whether or not they support uh, client-side storage. Most of the, the new browsers now support all of the HTML5 uh, storage, but the limits are usually around 5 megabytes per domain. Unfortunately, that's usually per third-level domain. Um, and so, you know, as we all know, it's completely impossible for people to have thousands and thousands of domains, except unless it's very easy for them if they have, if it's third-level domains and you set up wildcard DNS um, and you write a little bit of script like this script and you go through and you generate lots and lots of subdomains and under each one store five megabytes of A's. Um, try this on some browsers. It doesn't do anything very good to them. On most desktop application, uh, operating systems, it's not as huge a deal. Um, I, I think this will become more of an issue because WebKit does support five megabytes per, per subdomain. Um, on WebKit is used in most of the phone OSs, um, and therefore is of you know those phone operating systems have uh, much more limited uh, capabilities and, and, and much more limited memory and local storage space. So denial of service against those guys will, will be a lot of fun. And so I, I think you would be interested to try these things against iPhone, Safari, and Android, and, and Nokia, all of which use WebKit um, as their basis. And you're talking this would be if you go to malicious.org and they just start spawning. Five megabyte, five megabyte, five megabyte storage containers until you exhaust local disk. Exhaust local disk or RAM. Yeah, a lot of this is stored in RAM. And um, how do these do object cleanup? I mean, do they all of a sudden say, "Well, you haven't touched this data in a long time," or it's all totally operating system dependent? They they really don't do much in the way of cleanup. Um, some of the storage, like global storage, is wiped when you you reboot the uh, the browser. Um, some of it is supposed to last forever, like the SQL storage. Um, this is actually something that uh, is we just looked at recently. One of my colleagues, uh, Kami Kinley, wrote a paper about if you go through and you clear all of your data in all these browsers, what does it clear? And it turns out all of the I want to erase all my private data stuff still only is dealing with mostly cookies, right? Things like the HTML data stores, the SQL data stores, it is completely unequal whether or not they are actually wiped. And so the... That's not just a denial of service issue, but that's a massive privacy issue um, that is, is not being addressed kind of in a standard way because there's, there's really no way that I can recommend to people using normal browsers to actually to, to wipe out enough data that they can't be tracked online. And then this makes sense if you think about it, right? Because Google Gears is a browser plugin, in, in well, unless it's in Chrome. So the the idea of clearing, being able to go to you know Mozilla's clear all my private data, um, the same problem exists 
with um, flash local storage objects, you know, so-called flash cookies. Um, you can't clear those through the traditional browser UI because the browser is completely unaware they exist. Right. I, my recommendation would be for the, NS, the standard NSAPI uh, interface that the, the non-IE browsers use to implement a, a new function, that, a callback um, that can be registered that says somebody has has you know, I when when that flash can register for a callback when somebody says I want to clear all my data, um, that Silverlight can register for. Um, but until then, uh, clearing out the data from all these things is is almost impossible. Um, if you want to do private browsing, you really should do it inside of a virtual machine. Do a snapshot, do your browsing, and then revert your your machine back to that snapshot. Um, and there's the paper you can read about it. I, I can't go into details here, but the different browsers have Safari is by far the worst. Chrome is okay. IE is okay. Um, have very different levels of for clearing data. And also, the other interesting thing is all these browsers, or many of these browsers are now um, are advertising what are really prawn mode, right? It's the, the privacy mode where it doesn't record uh, local uh, anything locally about where you've been. And it's supposed to not write cookies to the hard drive. It's supposed to not record your URLs. And it does so, but those the secret mode or incognito mode or... Uh, you know, whatever mode it is that you're, you're supposed to, they, their advertising is supposed to be secret. None of them touch uh, Flash or Silverlight or any of that stuff. And and, and so, uh, if you know, if I was a malicious ad provider, if I was at, well, DoubleClick is supposed to be good now because they're part of Google. But if I wanted to start up the, the evil version of DoubleClick that's going to track everybody across the web, you'd have to be a complete idiot to use cookies these days. There are much, much better ways to track people across the Internet that is very difficult for them to shrug off, even when they're in the secret mode, and even if they are very, um, you know, often going in and clearing out all of their data. And that's primarily what flash cookies and persistent data stores from AIR. Right, right. Flash cookies, persistent data stores, and AIR, and then also the HTML5 stuff, like SQL, some of it still isn't cleared. Turning off that stuff isn't even in the GUI in Firefox. You have to go into About Config um, and, and switch uh, something to, to turn off the local data storage there. Local data storage for? Uh, for HTML5 in Firefox in, 3. In Firefox 3. Oh, well, thank you for that. I think I'll try that right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it, it does get make you really paranoid when you look at where browsers have come. And, and here's some of the things I'm talking about. So, you know, Firefox 3.1 has been implementing lots and lots of the HTML5 standards, um, including web workers, which, um, again, if you if you go back to, uh, I don't know, are videos online from last year's Black Hat? Jeff, are you, have you guys posted those are yet? Are they online? No, I think Darrington, they're, uh, they're getting online within the next two weeks. Okay, not to put pressure on you, but... No, no, well, <laughs> they should have been up by now. So we, we, we talked about a little bit last... You know, there are some fun things that if you have the ability to spawn off threads of JavaScript that run in the background that you can theoretically do on Gears, and, and now even in Firefox 3.1, um, they're adding cross-site XML HTTP request, which is one of the most fun bugs. If you go into Bugzilla on Firefox's public Bugzilla and you look up cross-site XML HTTP request, there's a huge discussion um, at which the security people have now lost, and it's it's been going to be a standard in, in Firefox 3.1. Um, as well as geolocation, uh, you know, I, last year I spoke at the Web 2.0 Expo and then Web 2.0 Expo Europe, and between, like, the early part of the year and the end of the year, there's a massive sea change in the Web 2.0 world in that every single company has to talk about geolocation. It's now, you know, you're not Web 2.1 enabled unless you have the ability to track all of your users um, in your Web 2.0 app. It absolutely is what everybody's talking about. I think it's a horrible, horrible idea, um, especially because 
if you look at the spec people are implementing now, Gears has its own geolocation um, API, which has the, the standard Gears opt-in dialog. HTML5 um, also implements the geolocation API. Uh, and if you look in the spec, uh, you know, 7.3.8 under security, it says need to write this section. Uh, is the security section of HTML5. It's the same thing here, the geolocation API spec. Um, if you look at that screenshot, under security and privacy considerations, um, there's three dots. Uh, that's not acceptable, right? Uh, you know, to, to, to kind of sum it up, it's it's this is not um, how the we've gone through this for too long since since the early days of the web of the late '90s. Every single spec that gets put out there, every single reference implementation turns out to be insecure of everything on the web. And it, after all the pain we've gone through, after all the bugs that we've dealt with, it is not acceptable that the, the standards bodies are going and implementing all of this functionality without ever thinking about security and privacy. Security and privacy is literally not considered in these specifications. The, the, the sections are empty. Those are decisions that are made way after the specs are written. And the problem is that these specs are being implemented way before they become standard. HTML5 is way far away from being standard, and already Safari and Firefox support a ton of the HTML5 standards. And, and, and so if security is the last thing you do, you have this, this period of time during which people are going to be exposed. And also that companies are going to start writing to these standards that will never be able to get changed in the future due to security concerns because there's going to be way too much pressure from the web developers. Um, it is a total failure from, I think, the browser manufacturers uh, as well as uh, you know, especially the, the, the standards committees. Um, there has to be security people involved with the decisions made. It can't just be, you know, one guy with a good idea at Opera makes up a spec, uh, and, and that becomes part of the standard, because that's basically how it is right now. Okay, um, so you're preaching sorry. to the choir, though. I'm preaching to that choir, yeah. I, yeah. Way, way too many AMs, uh, amens. So. Um, so some real real fast on some of the practical effects of, of some of this stuff. Um we're going to see some malware. Uh, Adobe Air, not, not to beat up on them too much, but it, it is right now only the only only uh, one of the RIA frameworks that's powerful enough to allow you to see malware with it. So it should be interesting to see whether or not that becomes an issue. The other issue is that a lot of these frameworks include lots and lots of media codecs. As we all know, media codecs, they have lots of security vulnerabilities in them. They're very difficult to write securely. Um, so it should be interesting to see if there are more attacks against the media codecs that get, get pulled out. Um, like... Billy said, uh, talked about a lot, um, the local data storage uh, is a very, very scary due to cross-site scripting as well as because of the denial of service issues. Um, there's some things you can do to protect that, uh, like use parameterized SQL and be very careful what you store. Um, I'd also recommend uh, when somebody clicks the logout button, JavaScript should go in and clean out your local store because you, you shouldn't have people be able to be vulnerable to cross-site scripting when you're, they're logged out and then have their logged-in data uh, get through. Um, like Jeff said, uh, this, a lot of this sounds like ActiveX, uh, and so we all have the benefit here of, of seeing uh, what Microsoft's mistakes were in, in IE5. Um, those big mistakes are trusting the user to make decisions. You really cannot do so. The, the default functionality has to be secure. You can't, make, you can't help them make those decisions. And, and then also to put too much, um, while I do complain a little bit about doing year allowing self-signed certs, Professionally given out VeriSign, you know, certificate authority certificates don't really mean anything. Um, we have a VeriSign code signing cert. We've signed a bunch of our, our attack tools and stuff like that with with that, that cert. Um, it doesn't really mean anything to be able to. You just need to have like a gas bill in the name of a corporation uh, to be able to get a VeriSign code signing certificate. That cannot be too much uh, credence placed on those. Um, 
the UI for security for these things need to be really thought out of. Um, again, this is an ActiveX issue that Microsoft has now made the UI completely user-unfriendly, uh, and that, that becomes intentional. Um, other issues is, like I said, the Rio frameworks have a very large attack surface, and so if you have Flash, Adobe Air, Silverlight, and Gears installed in your browser, which a number of people probably do, you now have you know multiple different... Adobe Air, for example, has an entire HTML... Uh, it has an entire implementation of WebKit on the inside of it. So you can have Adobe Air inside of IE, and now you'll be vulnerable uh, you know, to both attacks against the IE uh, HTML renderer as well as against the WebKit renderer. Which Actually, that's not true, Alex. Air is a completely separate process. It's a desktop EXE that doesn't run the browser at all. Right. No, I'm saying, if, okay, if I have both of those installed and looking at, I think people, it's just interesting that all of these things have so much attack surface. And then now I have multiple renderers, especially WebKit, is getting embedded into everything. Are you, are you talking sort of like how uh, if you had Safari installed and you had uh, Firefox installed or something? Right, right, exactly. And if I, my Air app is being launched from a site, and then it, it is referring and it's supposed to be have an untrusted site on the inside, I have lots of renderers. And, and WebKit is just especially scary because it has lots of bugs. And those bugs, for some reason, don't seem to make it. It takes a long time for, for Apple to get that pushed down the whole tree of all the people that need it. Um, so that's a little bit a little bit scary. Anyway, our recommendation, people, is know what you have installed and only install the RIA frameworks you really care about. Um, for big corporations, if, if you're going to be pushing out error applications and you guys are signing them, then push out the registry key that disallows self-signed error um, installs uh, in that you know, we'll fix a lot of those um, issues. If, for normal people, I, I love NoScript. I love using NoScript inside of Firefox. For the most part, it will not allow people to access this stuff. And, and the NoScript guys are pretty on top of as new frameworks and features come out um, to make sure that that stuff, uh, you know, gets supported by NoScript. Um, okay, and, I'm going uh, to put, put the pedal to the metal and speed you up so we have time. Yeah, I'm, I'm basically done. So, I mean, you know, as a, as a uh, conclusion, you know, the RIA frameworks are very, very, very different in their security models. Adobe Air, super full-featured desktop application framework, all the way down to Gears, which is very, very limited, includes an opt-in. Um, and like I said, Gears is kind of quaint because now you can do all that stuff without installing a plugin. Um, it's, it's very, very likely that if you're a web developer and you're using these technologies for the first time, you're going to introduce security flaws, either cross-site scripting and all service flaws like Billy talked about, or things like the ability to, to attack through cross-site scripting the actual desktop. Um, and as a result, the, you know, the web is becoming much less standardized. And it's going to be much harder for security people to give good advice because now we have to take into account a bunch of different technologies that we don't understand very well and that nobody understands very well, and there's still a lot of work to be, to be done here. So anyway, that's it for me, Jeff. Hey, and uh, I didn't hear the words Opera or Java mentioned once. Um, well, who, can we forget Java and our niche players like Opera and other smaller browsers? It doesn't really matter. Well, uh, Java, the, the interesting RIA framework for Java is JavaFX, and we thought about including it, and we originally started some research on JavaFX, but we couldn't find anybody really using it. It seems that Air is much more popular right now for people that want to do thick applications than Java, which is kind of funny, right? It's, it's one of those classic Sun stories where Sun is the, the early mover and pushes out a, a technology um, and then it gets re-implemented and much more user-friendly. It's much easier to write an Adobe Air app than it is a JavaFX app. Um, so I, I haven't seen enough people use it, but JavaFX will be interesting from a security perspective. Just just haven't seen it deployed enough. Okay, cool. And Opera uh, does implement a bunch of the HTML5 stuff. In fact, the Opera developers are 
in many on many of the HTML5 specs and, and the new JavaScript specifications are the maintainers. So they are definitely um, probably the most innovative browser, which is kind of scary in a way too. All right. So we uh, don't forget, just pump in some questions in the questions and answer tab if you have anything for these guys. And uh, since there's no questions in there right now, we're going to move on to our final presenter of the day. And I know I've butchered your name, Pellis Uli. Uh, Pellis Uli, yeah. How do you pronounce it? Pellis Uli. Pellis Uli. Yeah. Are you sitting up here in Seattle with me, or are you down in the Bay Area? No, I'm in the Bay Area. Ah, okay. So you've missed the snow. Unfortunately, yes. Well, okay. You've heard uh, what our other two presenters have to say. Why don't you tell us about uh, the Adobe Technologies, and then uh, we can start our final discussion. Okay. Um, so uh, my name is Pellis. I work uh, as a senior security researcher on the Adobe Secure Software Engineering team. And uh, for those who aren't familiar with our team, we're, we're similar in a lot of ways to the Microsoft SWI team. Uh, we are separate from the product groups. Uh, we have a focus on application security. And each of us within the group has a specialization. My particular specialization is working with uh, our platforms, such as Flash, Air, and Flex. So when I engage with the groups, what I typically engage with is helping with spec reviews, security strategy planning, testing, incident response. Um, I think most people are, are probably familiar with the technology, so I won't uh, go into them too much. Uh, I do have some differences with how Alex interprets AIR. I don't necessarily see it as, a, as an ActiveX control. Uh, when someone goes to install it, there's an open save dialog. They can click the save when they click open. Uh, there's a very scary prompt asking them whether they want to uh, install the application to their computer. If it's self-signed, it's a little less scary if it's, uh, if it's a signed application. Uh, but there is an install experience, which is very similar to what you would get in the Microsoft uh, install experience. Uh, it does have the ability to be launched from the browser. However, that's not by default. Uh, the developer has to choose to opt into that uh, functionality. And it's uh, it's, when it is launched from the browser, it's a separate process. So you can imagine it being launched uh, similar to if you clicked on a custom scheme and how custom schemes, uh, URLs with custom schemes can launch applications. Uh, it's a similar process, but we use, a, we use a different flow for that because we didn't want to go down the, the custom scheme route. Uh, but once it launches, it is a desktop application, so it has all of the privileges and access that you would normally see within uh, a desktop application. Uh, Alex and I can go back and back for, for hours on it, and we have before. Uh, so uh, I just wanted to provide the, the opposite uh, point of view real quick. In fact, um, we'll, we'll have another webcast where it'll just be Peloton talking about the Air install experience for four hours. <laughs> <laughs> yes, every, everyone can bring alcohol. It'll be much fun. Um, but working for Adobe, when I look at... Uh, when I look at RIAs, because we're, we're a vendor that produces them, a lot of times I, I have to take a step back and I have to take a look at the, the full picture of, of what's going on. And some of uh, the remarks that Billy and Alex have made touched on these things already in that, for instance, many of the developers who create return net applications weren't necessarily the computer science majors in college, but they may be graphic artists who specialize in digital arts and new media. So they've learned 
things like inverse kinematics and how to animate a figure and how to to create their their art through uh, through digital devices. And some of that involved learning how to do programming, but they didn't necessarily take the full breadth of, of programming experience that computer science majors uh, have gone through. So it does create sort of a, an interesting uh, challenge for us as we develop our platforms. Uh, when we were developing Air, we did we did take that into account uh, with a lot of the decisions that we made. For instance, uh, the sandbox bridge that Alex mentioned, uh, it's not enabled by default. You have to go out of your way to set it up. Uh, you pick and choose what you want to be able to expose across that uh, bridge, object by object, function by function. And we've tried to include in our documentation warnings around that and, and information saying what you're about to do is, is to bridge two different domains. You, you want to take these sort of things into account. Um, but in addition to that, the, in the 90s, the web was the web, the desktop was the desktop, uh, servers were servers, mobile was mobile. And as RA has come, come into fruition, we're seeing those, those things blend more and more. Uh, you have fully functional browsers on your, your mobile application, on your mobile phones, so uh, you're able to get more of the rich internet application experience there. And uh, as I mentioned before, the web, the, the distinctions between web and desktop are starting to, to blur as these things grow. Uh, I think we've, got, we've got the background. What's the what's the cool <laughs> stuff? What's the cool stuff? All right. Yeah. <laughs> so. Um, some of some of the things that are driving what Adobe does around these is trying to be able to uh, create technologies that can can address this while still trying to create a, a secure environment. For instance, one of the things that Adobe originally innovated was the cross-domain permission policy, where two origins can uh, talk to each other, where they couldn't before within the browser, and now, as, as RA grows, you're seeing that uh, proliferate even more. Uh, Mozilla's uh, going down the W3 access control route to create cross-domain permissions. The uh, Microsoft browsers uh, supports XDR. And then you've got Java, Silverlight, and the Flash plugin, all of which support cross-domain. And the challenges that we're seeing with this is with RA security, what we're trying to do is we're trying to provide the security of sort of a military Humvee, but the experience of being a convertible sports car. Uh, people want the interfaces to be sleek. They want to be, they don't want to be hassled with security prompts. Um, they just want it to be completely transparent to their experience. Uh, but the challenge with doing that, though, is you're, we're also balancing the needs of several groups. Uh, we're balancing the needs of desktop administrators, website developers, content owners, end users. Uh, if you if you look for a flash security document, you'll see that we have uh, different security documentation targeted at all those different groups. And uh, we're creating frameworks to be able to allow the coordination of communication between mutually untrusting, untrusting parties. And you're starting to see this more with uh, widgets and gadgets. Uh, we mentioned before sort of cloud services where Amazon, uh, I believe I've, I've heard in the past that their homepage is made up of uh, close to 200 individual web services, but it's all Amazon site, and all those different origins need to be able to communicate with that, with each other. So, uh, what we're doing 
Lucent Adobe in order to be able to address all of these issues. And looking at the big picture of how we're deploying our RA technology out to to the internet uh, is we're doing a lot with security community outreach. So uh, one of the things that's apparent to us is that we can't secure the web on our own. Uh, we do need to be interactive with, with groups like the browser groups, uh, with vendors who create tools to analyze our runtimes, with uh, antivirus vendors. And we've been doing a lot more in terms of engaging the community and allowing people to, to interact with us more directly. And to give you a, a couple of examples of that, uh, when we were developing the Air Runtime, uh, we inter interacted with the antivirus community saying, hey, there are going to be these new files going around the Internet. Why don't you talk to us? We can explain to you how you can parse these and what to look for uh, when you parse them. We've uh, talked with the Mozilla group in the past when they were developing uh, W3C access control. Uh, since they were doing new uh, cross-domain development, they knew Adobe has had some experience in the past with, with doing that. Uh, they came to us. We engaged with them. Uh, we've been interacting with vendors so that they can be able to uh, build tools to help uh, catch security flaws before they go out into the market. You uh, may have seen a couple of weeks ago, IBM's launched AppScan, uh, where they have new flash functionality. When they were developing that, they talked to us about it. So how can we, how can we parse these environments? Now, years so, ago, this is an old story, but I'm curious on your uh, on your take on things. A couple years ago, when when uh, it seemed like there was a new exploit against PDF every other month, um, one of the security managers was was lamenting to another security uh, researcher and said, you know, why do they hate us? Or you, it's like he didn't understand that you have a very popular technology deployed everywhere, so of course you're going to be attacked. And uh, it sort of reminded me of the first generation of the security mindset at Microsoft, and then, and then they had this huge push and grew up. It still doesn't seem to have happened at, at Apple yet. Um, and it seems like Adobe has, has recently realized this. How uh, have you seen the, you know, the security mindset within the company change? Uh, well, uh, I can't speak to that specific quote. That was in, uh, sure. I don't expect you to, but I just, you know, yeah. as a as a security-minded uh, person. So, so yeah. So Adobe's uh, Adobe very much realizes that we're. Uh, we are a major target now. All right. The fact that we are cross-platform, the fact that we have this ubiquity, makes us an attractive target, both with Flash, with Air, uh, with Reader. And uh, I wouldn't say that we've just recently uh, started to get the mindset of security. We've actually had the mindset of security, uh, for security from some time, and we've been building it up, and we've been ramping up with it more and more within our team. And we haven't uh, maybe been as as vocal about it as, as Microsoft has in terms of going to conferences and uh, explaining to everybody what we've been doing. But uh, we have been making major strides uh, within the company in terms of maturing our, our security software development lifecycle and uh, growing the number of security people we have on our teams, growing the number of developers within in each individual product which have security experience and security training. 
And so, for instance, if you take a look back uh, over the last year or so with, with Flash, uh, we've made several huge architectural changes to the way that, that Flash interacts with the web in order to be able to address some of the new threats that we've been seeing uh, emerge in the web. And we've actually been able to address some of the, the issues that the browsers themselves haven't directly addressed well, so, themselves yet. So. so maybe this is outside of your area of expertise, but sure. um, so, for example, the latest Acrobat security issue that we, we heard about last week, and we're expecting a patch, what, sometime next month, um, is that whole process now is just is maturing. So, so when you guys heard about this uh, sort of zero day in the wild, your ability to respond quicker or understand the problem faster or, you know, how is this helping you guys deploy product faster for, for all the end users? You know, is it a better reporting mechanism or auto-update occurs quicker or? So, okay, so. Because it uh, sounds like a serious problem how, but there's quite this long delay between acknowledging the problem and fixing the problem. So it tells me maybe it's a very complicated issue to resolve with some dependencies. Yeah, so um, I don't have the, the ins and outs of everything that's been going on with on the reader side of the house because, as I, I said, I, I focus more on the, the flash and the air side. But what I can tell you it has been occurring in Adobe in general is that uh, some of those things have, have been occurring. For instance, you're, you're hearing more about uh, patches with Adobe products because we've been ramping up uh, how often we ship patches. So uh, we are we're reducing the amount of time it takes us to implement a patch. Uh, we're reducing that average. We're uh, increasing the uh, the number of patches we ship per year. So we've been uh, getting them out there faster that way. Uh, the the process work that we've done inside of Adobe uh, has been and the outreach work that we've been doing has been increasing our ability to be notified about these things sooner and to be able to uh, start working on on not only uh, patching the individual issue that we get notified of, but also uh, going through and doing a thorough check to make sure that um, if there's something else in that area that we're also detecting that and that we're responding to that. Okay. So, moving on, are you – sorry if I distracted you. That's okay. Um, so, yeah, so we, we do have a, a secure development lifecycle. We're actually starting to ramp up how vocal we're being externally with people on the, the projects that we've been working on uh, through a couple different route, uh, methods. Uh, part of it's blogging. We're starting up a, a blog from our team to be able to communicate this is what's going on inside of Adobe. Uh, we've also increased the amount of uh, security information out on the web and uh, the ability for people to get access to it. Uh, in a second, I'll get to some URLs, which, which talks about that. Um, and we've been uh, engaging specifically with uh, not only trying to be able to look at ourselves and what can we do within the platform, but also... Uh, as I said, we've been working with more vendors, uh, and over the next couple months, you'll start to see uh, more tools coming out from vendors to be able to address uh, Flash content. 
and uh, we've been working with groups like OWASP uh, to help uh, get information to the OWASP groups because they're very good about being able to reach out to the web application group. Uh, so there's there's multiple projects which are going on to be able to try and re uh, increase our patch responsiveness and also just prevent future patches from occurring. Uh, and this is Alex. I do have to uh, say that Adobe has done a really good job recently of, of developer documentation. Two, three years ago, a Flash developer had very little reliable information on what they can and can't do in Flash to create vulnerabilities. Um, and when Adobe Air came out, that, that security documentation already existed. So, um, which, while the, you know, the Flash VM stuff and the PDF bugs, are, it's always bad to have those kinds of bugs, which even worse is when the platform makes it very difficult to write secure code, and that's what we saw for Flash for quite a long time. And I think that's, a, that's getting a lot better than it was a couple of years ago. Yeah, uh, just to give an example of the documentation, uh, I wrote an article last year and I recently updated it called Creating a More Secure Swift Application. And it's a, a very lengthy article targeted at developers to provide uh, information on the security risks with different APIs, how to use them correctly. We've put together some tools for being able to do data validation. If you're using Flex, you can look at Flex validators. If you're looking at uh, Flash, I created a goal code project called Flash Validators, which uh, includes some of the stuff that Billy had mentioned earlier where uh, he was asking for something that said validate zip code. And the Flash Validator project and the Flex Validator project actually have specifically those APIs uh, to help people be able to do data validation. So, um, so we've been doing developer outreach within... Uh, with developers, and we've also been doing architectural advancements. Uh, as I said, we've uh, been making major strides in terms of uh, improving cross-domain policies so that they have more security controls with headers and meta policies. We've been uh, re-architecting and changing the defaults in some of the in the within the Flash player so that uh, it hasn't necessarily made the developing community happy with us because we've been changing defaults, but we have been doing a lot to, to lock down the, the environment. And uh, I can't go into everything because we're, we're running a little short in time here, and you'd have to uh, – it's, it's very difficult to summarize the, the runtime. But if you want up-to-date Flash Player security articles and references, uh, the link at the top is a very good resource for that. Uh, we also have two projects going on OWASP in order to – provide information, make it easier to find. If you go there, you'll actually find videos uh, of talks that people within Adobe have given at different conferences, talking about the security models, talking about things that you can do with, with Flash and Air to deploy them securely. And if, if you do want information on our bulletins, you can look at uh, adobe.com slash support security or our PCERT blog. That's where we've been putting out the most up-to-date information on our security patches. So if you have if you want the full information on the reader vulnerability, I'd recommend going to those resources to get more information. Okay. That's the place to go. Sort of like that. So, um, so, yeah, so uh, we've got 60 seconds. Anybody have any questions? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me see. There were a couple of questions. Uh, this is pretty much for everybody. Um, we answered the one about Acrobat security issue. This one's for Alex, which was, 
from Chad who says, so Alex recommends Opera over Firefox 3.1 in the event of higher application development? Uh, no, no. I, I was just saying that Opera is very quick to add HTML5 features because they are writing a lot of the spec. Um, but Firefox is, is reasonably quick, too. I would recommend people to run the least featured but still patched browser possible, which is probably Firefox with no script. In kiosk mode. In kiosk mode inside of a virtual machine on somebody else's server. <laughs> Using your neighbor's Wi-Fi. That's right. <laughs> That's the preferred Nmap uh, technique. Okay, let's see if we've got any other questions. Um, can we have a summary of the disagreement between everyone regarding Adobe Air Security? No need to have an actual debate. Just what do they disagree on from Ben? So we, we both agree that the Adobe Air mechanism for installing it is you, you get a box that pops up that says, do you want to save or open this thing? And then it says... Adobe Air, do you want to install it? And if it's signed, it says that this is from this is from Adobe Incorporated. Uh, this is this is dangerous because it runs the full rights. If it's not signed, it says this is not signed. We don't know who it's from. It runs the full rights. So my my disagreement is that I feel that 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 we're kind of backtracking, giving users that amount of control. And maybe that's not very progressive of me, uh, but I think you know most internet users cannot make that a correct decision. Pellis thinks that that's fine because it's almost the exact same wording Microsoft uses for when you download an EXE. And so it's just as bad as you normally, if you're downloading an executable file through Internet Explorer. Um, I think they're both actually correct, right? Uh, it's just, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see if, it will just, time will tell if people actually start to exploit that or if they stay with the normal ways of seeing malware. Yeah, if, if you go to images.google.com, the Google Air Installer dialog, uh, Look for the, the black and gray images, which have question marks on them, and you can see the, the installer dialogue that people will see when they install in their application. Okay. It, it would be interesting if, if there was, in future versions of Air, the ability to, to run stuff actually in, in some kind of sandbox. Well, yeah, almost uh, like the default, default says, this is untrusted. The default action is run without complete permissions, or you have to do something really annoying to get full permissions. Right, because it seems to me most people, if you look at the uh, Adobe Air Showcase, um, it you know lists eBay and a couple other companies that are writing Adobe Air apps. None of those guys need to load, be able to, to, to write to arbitrary parts of the hard drive. Um, the, the other complaint I have that I don't know what else is, is that Adobe does give out self-signed applets from Adobe, from the Adobe Air Marketplace. And I just don't think it's good to encourage people to allow self-signed installation. So, yeah, and that's something we've we've been working on. We've also been working on making it easier for developers to be able to get uh, code signing certs. We've added uh, support for individual developer certs uh, within uh, within the air runtime. Is there as a security manager? Would you, is there a way I could through policy say only allow Adobe signed apps to run, or only allow trusted uh, code signing? Or is it everything will always be up to the user? There's no sort of administrative way I can say through config option, ignore everything but trusted certs. You can use group policy to push a registry key that only that turns off self-signed installation. And then um, I believe the last time I looked, Air's 
uh, certificates it agrees it uh, trusts were all individual text files, so you could probably use group policy to delete a couple of those or an install script just to place your own CA there. Is that true, Pillis? Uh, repeat the last part of that. Are the, the Adobe Air CA still in just text files in the program files, Adobe Air or something, slash certs or something like that? No, for the... For the operating systems, we use the native operating system search stores, uh, with the one exception of Linux, where Linux doesn't have a native operating system search store. Okay. Well, that changed. It used to be local. So, but you still do the registry key for self-signed, right? Yes. All right. Well, we're pretty much out of time. We're out of questions, and I think it's, uh, it's time to thank our presenters for putting in their time today sharing their thoughts with us, and uh, we're going to pop up a questionnaire for you if uh, we haven't popped it up already on your screen, and I'm just going to let you know that uh, this is something we do the third Thursday of every month, and we'll be having another webinar next month. Hey, uh, Darrington, do you know the topic for next month and who our presenters are? I do. Uh, I don't know our presenters all yet, but our, our topic is a preview of Black Hat Europe 2009. And we'll try to pick the hottest topic talks there or teasers, and uh, give everybody a preview of what to expect. There's, there's a couple talks that should be pretty exciting. Uh, if, they, if people are patched in time and they can make the public announcement, it should be pretty exciting. Also, uh, we continue to have an ever-growing LinkedIn group. It's something that amazes me, but apparently a lot of people are really into their LinkedIn, and we've got a, a pretty active group there now. And we're trying to encourage everybody, if you've taken any pictures at Black Hat DC or anything, try to upload them to our Flickr feed. We're trying to grow that. And we also uh, have a new mailing list that we send announcements once a month to. We don't spam you. Just once a month that we let you know what's going on. And that's, uh, you can ask to subscribe to it by mailing feedback at blackhat.com. And uh, how do you guys prefer to be contacted if any of the audience members have follow-up questions? Uh, well, Pellis' cell phone number. Uh, <laughs> real fast. Email should be fine. Okay. Uh, I'm Alex at IsaacPartners.com if people want to get me. I'm uh, Billy.Hoffman, H-O-F-F-M-A-N, at HP.com. And mine's uh, my first initial and my last name at Adobe.com. So it's, it's uh, F-I-R-S-T-I-N-I-C. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, P-U-H-L-E-Y at adobe.com. <laughs> well, hey, thanks, guys. Um, we're going to take this presentation. We're going to make it available online for either download for just the audio or through On24 there will be this sort of sync view where you'll be able to watch the slides synchronized with the audio, and that should be available in the next couple of days. And, and we'll put it on our RSS feed and tweet it on our uh, Black Hat Twitter account when, uh, when all that content's available. And yes, we are grinding away on the video, so uh, Black Hat USA content and DC should be available pretty soon. So with that said, I want to thank everybody for tuning in, and uh, hopefully everybody will have an early weekend. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for attending today's Black Hat webcast, Rich Internet Application Security, brought to you by Black Hat and United Business Media, LLC. Shortly after the live event, you can access this presentation on demand. This webcast is copyright 2009 by United Business Media, LLC. The presentation materials are owned by copyright. If that is the case, by Black Hat and United Business Media, LLC. 
are solely responsible for its content, and the individual speakers are solely responsible for their content and opinion. On behalf of our guests, Jeff Moss of Black Hat, Billy Hoffman of HP Software, Alex Damos of ISEC Partners, and Peleus Yuli of Adobe, thank you for your time, and have a great day. <laughs>